0: Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I will be interviewing our guest, Dr. Stephen Rudenti. Stephen is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at the City University of New York. Stephen, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm going to call you Stephen, if that's all right, because that's how I knew you um, back in 2007 when we first met back at a a research lab. We were both working um, at Harvard. So maybe we could use that as a bit of a segue into just uh, you giving a bit of an overview of your background and how you came to be a a researcher and professor um, at the City University of New York. Sure. Yes,
1: uh, so it's great to be speaking with you again, years later, Sean. We uh, we worked together at Harvard at the Scapins Eye Research Institute with uh, Dr. Michael Young. And I remember we shared a lab bench and, uh, and I think we made some good discoveries together. Um, I started when I was younger uh, as a visual artist studying sculpture and painting. And I did that for a few years and, uh, Closer to 30, I went back to graduate school for neuroscience at the uh, City University of New York at Hunter College. And um, I focused on retinal biochemistry, in particular, the the electrical and biochemical properties of photoreceptors as they connect to the first uh, synapse with the bipolar cells in the retina. And I worked with a nice professor named uh, Dr. Richard Chappell, who was a former nuclear submarine engineer. Um, then I was also volunteering at the same time with an organization called Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic. And just by coincidence, I think I was moving into the field of visual research or research to restore visual, visual function by, uh, caused by blinding diseases, perhaps. Um, when I left the City University of New York is when I went to Harvard and where I met you, Sean. And uh, I spent three years there working between Michael Young, Dr. Young and uh, Dr. Bob Langer at MIT. And my goal there was to engineer retinal tissue using uh, biodegradable and some biomimetic polymers. So uh, these biomimetic means that we try to model these small substrates uh, after the sort of elasticity and the texture and the architecture of endogenous retina. And uh, after I finished my postdoc with uh, Dr. Young, I I was hired as an assistant professor here at the City University of New York and started working on problems that I thought would be most important to move the field of photoreceptor transplantation forward, um, namely um, enhancing the migratory potential of transplantable photoreceptor cells amongst other projects. And, um, that, uh, has now it's been a 12 year journey. I I started with some real original questions and I, uh, some curiosity driven questions and spoke to a bunch of old scientists when I was starting my lab. And that that was their advice to follow the research that piqued your curiosity. And, And here I am, I, uh, speaking to you today and, uh,
0: (laughs) <laughs> that's, no, 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 fair, fair enough no that's uh, thanks thanks for the overview um i i completely forgot but i knew this when we met but that you had the the visual arts and sculpting background uh, is that something that you've continued as a as a hobby over the years at all i've kind of applied that creativity
1: to my research my my my, my design of experimental designs and reaching into the field for uh for the latest technology or creative ways to approach problems cr- across disciplines i think of i think of my work as a scientist as a work as a creative work in process
0: so oh, that's, that's yeah. fair that's fair it, it, it echoes um we had a, a guest on the podcast in the past named walter wittich who also had a uh, he's from um, he's from montreal he's a, a professor uh focusing on low vision and he had a very um uh, creative arts background as well uh, and then ended up in the uh, I think once it was neuroscience as well and then it's op- ophthalmology research so it's uh, uh, there's probably there's probably some overlap not some overlap but there's probably some benefit from that uh, you know developing the the right side of the brain uh, and, and in parallel with the left I guess if, if you I don't know if it's quite that simple you're the neuroscience researcher but <laughs> Anyhow, the, uh, I'll dive into some more of the, the questions. I could talk about this stuff forever. Um, so one thing that's fascinating me about your research uh, and you're talking about, you know, um, cross-disciplinary um, insights and focus is that you don't just focus on, you know, the retina and biochemistry of vision, but your research also spans um, other domains like oncology. So you know why is that is that to try to gain insights and apply that you learn somewhere and apply them to another domain or or what has been the i guess the impetus um behind that and if there's any you know learnings uh, from one field that you've applied to the other that's a great question and um
1: what i've done is uh i've worked with some systems pharmacologists and um geneticists to identify mechanisms that are conserved between metastatic cancer cells and migrating transplanted stem cells, meaning a a transplanted stem cell has to migrate, in particular in the retina, a transplanted photoreceptor replacement cell has to invade the retinal tissue and then take up residence in the host tissue. So there are a number of mechanisms that a cell uses to do that. There's migratory machinery. And as I started my lab and started looking at databases for mechanisms that drive cell migration, most of the databases are filled with cancer metastasis data. In particular, the ingenuity pathway analysis database, which is probably one of the largest we work with, the majority of the gene expression data and the molecular data are all based on uh, studies in, um, in, in, in cancer cells. So the parallel for me between transplantable photoreceptors and cancer cells is that they both use the same migratory machinery at different times. Um, obviously metastasis in cancer cells is, it's part of the pathogenesis you want to stop. So we take the mechanisms we find in the cancer cells and we try to reverse, we try to upregulate them in our transplantable photoreceptors so that they will take on this aggressive migratory behavior or phenotype. That's one uh, aspect. What we're studying is, the the cancer we're studying in particular now is retinoblastoma. And um, we are at the same time trying to knock down retinoblastoma genes to prevent it from metastasizing. And um, that's one line of research in the lab. But the, a parallel line of research in the lab is to take the genes we find upregulated in the metastatic retinoblastoma cells and, and try to turn them up in our transplantable photoreceptor cells to restore vision or to rebuild the architecture of the retina. Because as you may be aware, the, 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 the success in the transplantation rate of new photoreceptors is very low. It's close to 1%. And um, that was one of the big questions I left Harvard with is what's... What can we modify in the individual transplantable cells that would increase their probability of entering a host retina, and as a path to restoring vision?
0: You know, that's you know, it's a kind of a it's a, a creative, I guess, a creative approach. And you know, back when I so I actually worked in a, at McGill in an ocular pathology lab. And doing you know a little bit of ocular oncology research with ocular melanoma and retinoblastoma as well, and uh, you know some of these you know invasion and migration assays were pretty standard, Um, you know we we were trying to downregulate that ability of these cells to you know um, invade or migrate and just using these you know these in vitro assays, Uh, but I never really thought about the opposite, which you know as you say it it seems so obvious in, in hindsight, but why would we not have uh, tried to, uh, I guess we knew a little, we knew less about the cells and maybe what was causing them to, to, uh, migrate at that time. But I think, is it the same things like a lot of these MMP proteins and whatnot? I mean, I'm talking from my memory from 10 or 12 years ago, so I'm sure there's a lot has changed, but, um, is there a certain class of molecules that really seems to govern this process? We're looking at some, one example
1: would be um, chemotactic guidance, which would be like a stromal derived factor uh, and a CXCR12 receptor, but also the MMPs are involved. The same canonical machinery that you would probably study is what we're applying in a novel way to enhance the migration of transplantable uh, photoreceptor replacement cells. It's just not been
0: studied in the, in this context. No, I didn't think it makes sense when you're, you know, studying retinoblastoma and cells that would be most like the cells in the retina that you are trying to transplant. It uh, it just seems logical. Right? <laughs> it just seems logical. It's like why hasn't somebody done this before? But uh, uh, I guess those are probably the best projects too, right? They just don't. It's like yeah, it just seems like an obvious thing to do. Uh, and there would be, you know, what's nice, it would be, I would imagine, uh, quite a database of information out there uh maybe not so much retinoblastoma but for um you know tumors in general right where a lot of the like you said the machinery might be might be similar so uh, probably being tapped tapping into that database of information is probably quite uh, quite valuable um this so on your i'm gonna jump ahead on some questions here a little bit I'm gonna be a little bit all over the place but um you know i was looking up what your lab's focus is and this probably ties into what you've just been talking about but um i probably don't remember this exactly as it was written but it was something to do with how cells respond to uh, like morphogenetic fields of uh biochemical and electrical signals and how that might influence um uh, development of you know neural tissues so could you just unpack that a little bit for us and maybe describe what that even means? <laughs> what that what, what that means for, well, you said you teach undergraduate students, right? So if I'm an undergraduate student sitting in front of you, maybe if you had to describe what that means, could you unpack that for us? Yeah, that's a
1: fine, fine way to put it. Yeah, I wrote this 12 years ago when I was probably trying to say a lot with, you know, uh, I had a lot of ideas, uh, but, but to put it simply, um, we, we use this idea of a morphogenetic field to define the, uh, the chemical, the tension and the electrical signals present in the retinal environment um, in, in relation to the response properties of transplanted cells. So to, to explain it clearly, you if I have a transplantable photoreceptor pla- replacement cell, these are typically photoreceptor precursor cells. They're postmitotic, but they have a, a personality of their own. They have a set of sense receptors or a, sent, a set of chemotactic receptors that are expressed on their surface. They also have the actin and migratory machinery of a newly post mitotic cell. So I call these the response, um, mach- the response properties of the cell. What can the cell detect What and and and, and you'll be surprised how much a single cell can respond to. And I'm always conveying to the students that you want to think about a, a, an individual neuron or an individual neuroprogenitor or a photoreceptor precursor as having a personality the way a, a young child would have a personality. Um, the cells, for example, will respond to light. There's phototaxis. Uh, these cells will also respond to electricity. There is electrotaxis. Uh, obviously there's chemotaxis, which is that there are, this is what we've studied the most of is there are a set of chemotactic receptors expressed on the surface of these cells. And the retina is releasing fields of proteins that will bind to those receptors. And the cells will then make a decision whether to move forward, to move backward or not to move at all in response to the field of ligand gradients coming from the retina as well as the endogenous electrical field of the retina and perhaps the the softness or the hardness of the retina
0: itself so this is okay. how's that oh, sorry, sorry. No, I, no, that's, no that's good so i was just gonna jump in with a, a thought so uh, which is probably makes no sense but <laughs> we'll try um you know you're, you're talking about the uh looking at ways to influence the migration and integration of these photoreceptor cells or photoreceptor precursor cells into the retina when they're transplanted because they don't have a very high affinity i guess uh in the first place it has anybody looked at the opposite too like you're talking about the the retina releasing you know, these ligands into the environment and, and and whatnot has anybody looked at how do we make the remaining retina uh, as more permissible before we even transplant these cells? Is that something that's been looked at?
1: Yeah, it's been done in a number of studies to, for example, there's a, a Mueller glial cell, as you know, that, that becomes, it can become in, uh, uh, active, active and inflamed during disease and uh, injury. And some studies have tried to break apart the Mueller cells to allow for the migration of uh, newly transplanted cells into the retina. Others have added growth factors to the retina. And I think that some progress was made in those studies. But yeah, I, I, saw, a, I saw room for understanding the response properties of the transplanted cells in, in relation to those other studies. In, in re, and maybe, maybe these kinds of techniques can be used in parallel to optimize transplantation. Some pretreatment of the retina with some optimization of the migratory capacity of the transplanted cells.
0: No, Okay. That, that, make, that makes sense. So just, it's something I haven't heard of. Uh, and again, I've been out of touch with the research for, for quite some time, but it just seemed to, you know, kind of make the soil as, as permissive as possible and make the seed, I guess, as, you know, as best it can and, and blast as many in there as you can. And, uh, you know, uh, try to optimize that procedure. Um, what, in, in the you notes, know, I like to talk about this stuff, the biochemistry vision because it, you know, a lot of what the general public is going to hear is um, clinical stage results from, from research, for example, and okay, there's a drug and it works or a drug and it doesn't work, et cetera. Um, but all of those discoveries are all ultimately based on um, or, or you know evolve from, um basic science research right it all has to start somewhere um it doesn't just start with a magical drug with a magical target this is all stuff that's discovered uh in basic research labs like yours that then inform um um clinical stage type of applications so i'm wondering if maybe you could if there's if anything comes to mind um over the last could be 5 10 years <laughs> I'll fill in that gap like 12 years <laughs> of my life uh, what, you know, what are some of the more exciting discoveries or advancements on the basic science or biochemistry side uh, of vision? And, and if any of those are still hot topics today? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that was one of your initial
1: questions. And uh, so one aspect of the work we're describing in terms of uh, potential new targets for therapies or potential new mechanisms that may be involved in the pathogenesis of retinal disease or the pathogenesis of ocular trauma would be um, what are extracellular vesicles. These are retinal extracellular vesicles, but they extracellular vesicles are released from all cell types studied. This is kind of an, a decade old field, but it's quite uh, compelling now and and uh, drawing a lot of attention I started doing this research 10, uh, 10 years ago. I didn't think it would become as as exciting to everyone as it is, but these extracellular vesicles released uh, from all cell types in the retina so far that we've studied contain DNA and RNA and proteins and also mitochondria and some organelles. But the small extracellular vesicles are, are a signature of the cells that they're released from. So if the a, if a retina is under a state of disease, for example, something like, age-related macular degeneration. Um, Then the retinal pigment epithelial cells in one of our recent studies is going to be releasing these extracellular vesicles that contain disease molecular characteristics and uh, proteins. And then these extracellular vesicles can target cells within the retina that we believe uh, drive the pathogenesis of the disease. Something like Drusen, for example, is associated with exosomes or extracellular vesicles as far as we've studied them so far. Um, So also in something like retinoblastoma, we have studied the release of extracellular vesicles from these tumor cells. And this is really newly emerging data, but these cancer exosomes can target glial cells in the retina and then enhance the pathogenic environment uh, to facilitate tumor growth, but this is not unique to the eye. the 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 explosion of extracellular vesicle research is happening in all areas of biomedical research, and in in, in in cancer
0: as well as regenerative medicine. How do you study that, though? I mean, when you're like, how do you study these extracellular vesicles and and their contents, given that it's not just protein or just you know DNA or RNA? Mm-hmm. One step at a time, you know, there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's, there's no, there's no magic bullet here. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it just seems complicated, right. To, to actually study these and identify signatures, I guess. I mean, on right. a high, on a high level, like what does somebody do to look at that?
1: Well, one of the first studies we've done is, um, you know, first you have to allow the neural cells or the retinal cells to condition the media in vitro. Then pull out the conditioned media that's filled with billions of tiny extracellular vesicles. These are about 100 nanometers in diameter, and they have a lipid bilayer, so they can protect the DNA and the RNA inside of them. And then you have to put them through an centrifugation stage, which is just applying a, a very high amount of force for a significant amount of time, and you wind up with a tiny, barely visible pellet that is your extracellular vesicle pellet then you could resuspend those in media and you can do RNA sequencing on them, which we've done to get the full genetic expression of their cargo, their RNA cargo or their microRNA cargo. You can also do proteomic analysis, which we've done, which will give you a a profile of the protein signature inside these vesicles. And then you can add them to cells. Um, You can try to knock out genes and see if the genes are knocked out in the exosomes and if that changes the disease phenotype, uh, but at this stage, we're really just, we've been doing a lot of characterization, as you could imagine, uh, because it, there's so much information inside the vesicles, we've, we, we're just really at the
0: tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Now, I these uh, is it generally thought that these extracellular vesicles contain like metabolic waste of the, or like, or just stuff the cell doesn't need anymore, or is it random? Like, I'm just, I'm interested. I find this, I'm going to dive into this a little bit, if that's okay. You know, when I started doing this research 10 years ago, I asked a couple of senior scientists if they thought,
1: you know, it was just molecular waste or if it was something significant. And they told me time would tell. And so it is, there is selective packaging of proteins and RNA and DNA into these extracellular vesicles. So it's not waste, um, as you would imagine, a cell removing beta- metabolic waste through exocytosis. These are, there's selective packaging of cargo that, and that cargo has particular functions depending on the state of the cell that's releasing. Um, so one advantage to this is, uh, this, this is, there's an emerging field of biomarker discovery uh, because once once cells release their extracellular vesicles, they can travel systemically and be collected from all bodily fluids. So with cancer, this is really coming out quickly or something like bladder cancer, you can, there's, there's, there's the collection of these exosomes or the extracellular vesicles and they will really be able to give early diagnosis before before the, a disease phenotype might be visible through through observation or standard clinical exam, uh, these the, the specific packaging of cargo from disease cells, if it can be detected with a sensitive enough, sensitive enough detection measure, could could really advance early detection of, say, uh, cancers and uh, neurodegenerative diseases. This this is work is is really gaining ground in, in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and all, multiple types of cancers.
0: Oh, it's, it's interesting. Like it's, uh, you know, like you're talking about having cells in culture and then you get the conditioned media, you know, I guess back when I was a, um, a grad student postdoc, we just assumed that whatever was in the media, it's just cells have released that. And that's great. We never really thought about things being packaged in these extracellular vesicles and that actually to access that you had to, you know, centrifuge and, 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 uh, disassociate these vesicles. So no, it's, it's, uh, Pretty cool stuff. <laughs> so you have a paper that you were involved in, um, I think it was 2019, I forget, uh, but it was talking about these extracellular vesicles and drusen formation and and how these RP cells were releasing these uh, extracellular vesicles. And I think you were trying to you know, uh, reproduce something in vitro. Um, does that ring a bell or am I off in left field on how I remember that? Well, those are a couple of papers. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So you've read more than one, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you could just, just talk about that process a little bit, maybe in terms of, I guess, what you've learned from, uh, you know, from RP cells and extracellular vesicles and juicing formation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so the first paper in ILBS
1: a year or so ago was, uh, we pulled the neural retina out of a mouse, uh, mouse, uh, mouse model. And, uh, collected the extracellular vesicles from that in vitro just to just to for a proof of principle because we had not collected extracellular vesicles from retina at that point point. and from that we found um, several hundred proteins packaged inside the extracellular vesicles of uh, that were released from the ret the neural retina that was that paper was a pure characterization and uh, we also sort of demonstrated the transfer of molecular cargo from the retina to target retinal cells at a distance using an in vitro assay. Um, so that was to show that it was that this the release and transfer of molecular cargo was was feasible and happening at a constitu- constitutively inside the neural retina. And then in a, in, a, in a more recent paper um, we were looking at the release of extracellular vesicles from retinal pigment epithelium derived from human induced pluripotent stem cell retinal organoids, which I'm working with in uh, in collaboration with um, uh, Dr. Valerie Acanto Solar at at uh, University of Colorado, and um, um, we, well, the the, the scientists taking taking the lead on that is uh, Dr. Miguel Flores Belder. And he I, he and I isolated together the extracellular vesicles from a disease model, an AMD disease model, uh, using these retinal pigment epithelium in vitro. And we did this proteomic characterization of those extracellular vesicles and found that there was drusen associated with those extracellular vesicles and that in a modeled stress, uh, situation in vitro that the number of extracellular vesicles released would increase and that would increase the amount of drusen as well so those are the two studies and uh, these are initial findings the paper this this paper is under uh, submission right now for the retinal pigment epithelium work
0: nice so we're going to publish this podcast before uh, before the journal publishes the paper and the, and then and the broad eye podcast community, because i know about it before the general community. so no. there you go we try we try uh, so just uh, and again this is just for my own curiosity when we're talking about these vesicle extracellular vesicles being packaged and released from cells what makes it so that they can be taken up or actually signal something on a target cell uh, like it's not like just a protein that's binding to a receptor on a cell right these are vesicles that contain proteins and uh, nucleic acids and whatnot right so what i guess what do we know for certain that these things and you know are taken up by the cells or are they just signaling something extracellularly or or is that not known
1: oh it's uh, it's known there's a uh a large body of data on this. I think there were 3000 papers published last year on extracellular vesicles. Um, The field is exploding as I mentioned um, So these are internalized. Sometimes they're internalized by mechanisms of a standard endocytosis. Sometimes it's receptor mediated internalization. Sometimes the extracellular vesicle can fuse to the outer leaflet of a cell. And just deposit its cargo into the cell cytoplasm. So there are multiple mechanisms, and it seems to depend on the condition, uh, the microenvironment condition or the condition of the releasing cell, the releasing cell, then outside of the lipid bilayer of the exosome, there's typically a cage of proteins. Sometimes there are there are there are lip, there are receptors embedded in the lipid bilayer of the exosome. But on top of that, there is typically a cage of proteins that are attached to the outside surface of the exosome. So there's an interplay. There's there's protein to receptor binding, driving this intake and other mechanisms of intake. But when the exosomes are internalized or extracellular vesicles are internalized, the cargo can be distributed throughout the cytoplasm or it can be, it's often targeted to the perinuclear region to the uh, site of the endoplasmic reticulum, where a lot of um, protein synthesis occurs, or uh, RNA, um, RNA cargo shuttling is also occurring here. And, but if you look at the, it's really fascinating, if you look at the, we've done live imaging of extracellular vesicle internalization and the transport of these vesicles inside of a single neuron over time, they really fill the neuron and they get transported back and forth to the periphery of the cell and back to the nucleus on microtubule highways. They're being transported by motor molecules inside the cell. A, a lot of this work remains to be done. That, to to really define the destination of cargo from exosomes or extracellular vesicles inside of neurons. And, you know, the, the, the more, the more, a more comprehensive picture
0: is yet to emerge. But uh, no, no, yeah, well, no, it's fair. Like I've missed this whole uh, this whole field in the last ten years. The uh, uh, your papers are the only ones I've looked at that have anything to do with this. So apparently, I have another two thousand one hundred and ninety-eight papers just from last year <laughs> alone to to <laughs> to refresh myself on this. Um, but just before I go on to another question, I just wanted to circle back to. Um, you're saying that these RPE cells, whenever they are uh, stressed in some way, that they were releasing more of these, um, more of these uh, extracellular vesicles. Is it is the signature then of the of what the cargo inside these vesicles different? That which would then, you know, indicate a disease state uh, if you're able to, you know, like in the cancer, you know trying to detect this in people who have fairly stage cancers or is it just that there's more of them being released or that could be disease specific cell specific or nobody really knows it's <laughs> a lot of orders in there yeah, that's a perfect perfect scientific
1: question uh <laughs> the postdoc at harvard right, no, so uh we, uh, <laughs> we yeah they ask the answer is yes the signature of a disease cell is imprinted on the exosomes it's releasing so not only would there be more, but there would be more disease state cargo inside the extracellular vesicles. And it's, the function then can be to facilitate disease progression. Um, and that seems to be the case. I mean, in, in cancers, for example, it's very well established that exosomes released from tumor cells, whether it be glioblastoma or uh, other types of lymphomas, when, when the original tumor site releases exosomes, these can enter systemic circulation and where they land, they set up pre-metastatic niches, they're called. And the pre-metastatic niches then will signal to metastatic cancer cells to take up root and form new tumors in those, in those areas that have been primed or what's called educated by the initial tumors cancer exosomes. It's really fascinating the connectivity um, and the communication that these
0: little vesicles facilitate. You know, it makes sense, right? Because you know, and you think in cancer biology, we often think, okay, you have a you know a very small you know cluster of tumor cells in a, in an organ, and sometimes they remain you know dormant. I guess you can say uh, for a while, and but during that time, there was. A thought that maybe they're kind of conditioning the tissue around them so that they can, it, it is more permissible to grow and to essentially explode, right? But the idea that they could be releasing these extracellular vesicles from a distance to condition another target organ, you know, for metastatic disease uh, is wild. And I'm sure that's a, a target of therapies in these conditions, right? So, okay, how do we block these? uh extracellular vesicles from even being released like i don't know if that i'm assuming that's some sort of target for a therapy yes there are many yeah. many labs starting to research this area fair enough See, I, I, i'm so interested in the science and i get of this stuff a long time ago but um but i also like being able to ask people like you who have all the answers <laughs> fill, fill, fill me in on one decade in like 45 minutes so it's good uh, um, it's very very efficient uh, i just wanted to maybe cover one more topic uh, if that's all right um and it's just about um, the disease, the in vitro models, like so you mentioned, you know, in the one paper how you had uh, excised a, um, a a retina from a mouse and looking at this in vitro and then other one where you have taken uh, human indus- induced pluripotent stem cells that you've essentially um, uh, converted into uh, RPE cells. Um, what are some of the, I guess, benefits and limitations of using these, of, I guess, tissue-based like in vitro models or cell-based models compared to, uh, you know, working with animals, um, which I guess is probably the next stage in some of these cases, but what are some of maybe the, the benefits and drawbacks? Sure,
1: perfect questions. Um, so what I mentioned initially were uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived retinal organoids, and I collaborate with uh, Dr. Valerie Cantosolar on these. Uh, we, we've been looking at the exosomes, but she is a world expert. And so we'll, a, a retinal organoid is really a three-dimensional retina with attached retinal pigment epithelium that is derived from you know, human-induced pluripotent stem cells. And these- you can, human- you can make this
0: in a culture now?
1: Yes, yes. For the past decade or so, it's
0: quite <laughs> amazing, Sean. <Ron. laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is it. All right. Fair enough. I keep going. I'm educating here. That's good. That's good. No, this is, I, I, that's cool. That's cool. Okay. You know,
1: yeah. Since you and I were trying to generate retinal tissue at, back in Boston, this has really taken off. Um, so these retinal organoids, they, they recapitulate spatial temporally, the main steps of retinal development that you see in vivo and they form three-dimensional retinal cups with all the major neural cell types present and the retinal lamina highly organized so what's there are also some really new this 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 condition this 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 technique remains to be standardized and optimized it at this point it's valuable to use in conjunction with other models of drug discovery like in vivo models or mouse models or cell models but when it's standardized um, and could be efficiently and produced in a cost-friendly manner, I believe these will really be beneficial for drug discovery or retinal disease. They, 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 they do have some early photoreceptor outer segment development, and they, they actually can detect light. So it's quite fascinating to look at these little retinal cups in a dish. The, the one other benefit of this is um, that they can be patient-specific. So if someone has a single gene, something like retinitis pigmentosa, these skin cells can be derived, a retinal cup can be formed, different gene therapies can be targeted. Um, and then there's an, a wide spectrum of diseases like Stargat's disease and others that, uh, that are these human-induced pluripotent stem, stem cell optic cups are being generated and drugs are being tested to sort of, drugs and genetic, genetic modifications are being tested to bring the field forward. So those are, the, those are the strengths, I think, um, to, to augment the existing drug development pipelines. It won't replace in vivo models uh, because I think the weakness of these retinal organoids, even though they're fantastic, is there's, there's no immune response present in vitro with these models and there is no vascular vasculature present. Um, so it's an amazing model for retinal development in vitro and retinal function. But it's lacking the some of the major obstacles of uh, drug effective
0: drug therapy development in vivo. Oh, that's fair. I think that it it's, it just still seems uh, light years ahead of you know where it used to be, where we would just try to you know see the monolayer of these uh, you know harvested retinal progenitor cells, or then induce pluripotent stem cells in in a dish or something, right? So it just seems a little bit you know a big step closer toward in vivo, but still in vitro, right. That would probably yield more useful information. So, uh, no oh, this is, this is interesting. This is, uh, you're making me want to get back into to research. I mean, I'm still in science in some, in some ways in my, uh, with the podcast and outside as well. Um, but, uh, this is, this is fun. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to stop drilling with your questions and we can, we can wrap up. I don't know if there's anything else specifically you wanted to, to highlight, uh, but be careful if you do, because it could be a, uh, it, it could be a trap. So <laughs> You're still a scientist. You always will be Sean. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I'm a lot of things when scientists, I don't know if I'm still a scientist, but <laughs> um, no, but I wanted to, you know, I want to thank you for, for participating. I certainly, um, you know, appreciate you, you know, coming on and, and uh, sharing this information with everybody listening. Um, you know, at some point in, in time, I'd love to sit down and have a coffee with you and, uh, and learn what else I've, what else I don't know from the last decade of, of, uh, of, of, retinal research and, uh, you know, crash course. So, uh, sometime, hopefully we can do that in person. Absolutely. Be Excellent. Great. Steven, Dr. Stephen Redenti. Thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you, Sean. Right, take care. Thanks.